You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for tuning in to the show. All right, I'm going to pretty much just do a topical show today about the trumpet mania. Uh, and I'm going to try to cover like everything about trumpets in this show. We're going to talk about the, the, the trumpet call associated with the resurrection or the rapture, whatever you want to call it, and the, the feast of trumpets. We're going to talk about the silver trumpets in Numbers 10. We're going to just talk about trumpets today. So, you know, and one of the reasons is because so much bad doctrine, you know, I, I used to kind of think, hey, you know, it doesn't really matter what people think about a lot of this stuff, but but it it kind of does. I mean, a lot of really important doctrine kind of rests on this, and I think it's important to think think soberly about all this stuff. Every year, uh, everybody comes out with a different presentation about how the rapture is going to be that year on Rosh Hashanah. Now, Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets. And we're going to talk a lot about this stuff, and I just want to give sort of a thumbnail here. And the basic thing that I'm going to show you today is that the the trump or, or trumpet spoken of by the Lord and by Paul in association with the rapture has nothing to do with Rosh Hashanah. That does that does not mean that the fall feasts, which are which we're going to talk about, will not be fulfilled in the end times. I think that they will, and I also think that the spring feasts were fulfilled uh, in the time of Christ, and that we are waiting on the fulfillment of the fall feasts. That that much is true, but I think it's just so tempting to know that fact that the fall feasts are to be fulfilled prophetically, and have the first of those fall feasts be the feast of trumpets. It's just almost too good to be true to not bite and say, well, if the next one has to be the Feast of Trumpets, and Paul said at the last trump, then we must find a way to make these this last trump be the Feast of Trumpets, which which I will show is is not what Paul or the Lord is talking about with this last trump. Uh, and also the Feast of Trumpets has a much better fulfillment in end times prophecy than the rapture. Um, so let's just jump right into it. And I'm a little under the weather today. I've had a cold for uh, or flu, I don't know, for the last uh, little while. But I'm feeling actually a lot better, just sort of have a lot of residual stuffiness and whatnot. Um, so that's what's going on with my voice. So let's just jump in first to what some of these verses that are talked about that say the last trump. First uh, Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 is one of the really famous ones. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And First Thessalonians 4, 16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now the resurrection has always been associated with this. Now I, I know that... Um, some people don't see Matthew 24 as for the church, but I certainly do. And I believe that Paul is simply referring to what the Lord said in Matthew 24:31, when he said, and he, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Uh, but I don't. It, what I'm about to explain to you doesn't require that you see uh, my view of the timing of the rapture or anything. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this as on a level 
playing field for everybody, regardless of your view on the timing of the rapture on this issue. Uh, but what I want you to recognize is that the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, is associated with the um, with the resurrection or the rapture. Now, there are lots of different views as to what this last trumpet will be. That word last, by the way, just for clarity, is the word eschatos, or, uh, where we get eschaton, or final things. It's, it's kind of like the last day's trumpet. It's not necessarily the last in a series, first of all. Um, it can be the last in a series, and sometimes that word is used, but the last day is actually the eschaton day is the day in which the resurrection would happen. There's many times that the Lord refers to the last day. You'll be raised in the last day. I, you know, he, he tells us to look forward. Our, 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 what we look forward to as Christians is the eschaton day, the day in which we are uh, changed and corruptible, as, as Paul is referring to. And, of course, I believe referring to what the Lord said in Matthew 24, 31. But nevertheless, um, a lot of people view this trumpet or have interpreted this trumpet to be a number of things. First of all, as we mentioned, the Rosh Hashanah trumpets. This is the one that you'll see all over YouTube and everything else is saying, well, you know, there's a hundred trumpets on Rosh Hashanah, and this one is referring to the last of the hundred trumpets, and they go through all the details of the trumpets and any number of presentations you can see about that. So that's that's one view. Uh the other view tends to be the, the last in the series of the trumpets in the book of the Revelation. Now, this is problematic in lots of different ways. First of all, we're specifically told that, especially in view of this event, the rapture and the day of the Lord, that we will not see wrath. The, the, the First and Second Thessalonians, where we get these terms about us not being appointed for wrath, etc., are in view explicitly of this event, that we will not see the day of the Lord. And there there therefore becomes a ton of contradiction because no one would really argue that the seven trumpets are part of the day of the Lord or part of the wrath of God. It's an explicit uh, teaching in the book of Revelation that that is in fact the wrath of God. Uh, but nevertheless, I, will, I would say that even if you, we don't, we don't have to go there or not because I think that the, the hermeneutical idea that... Uh, Paul and the Lord are referring to this trumpet in something that can only be found in a vision that would yet to be uh, yet to occur uh, causes problems because Paul talks about this trumpet idea as if they already know it. You know, he, he he's not he's not saying this to his readers like you're not going to understand anything what I'm saying now until John writes this letter about seven trumpets. Um, you know th that the readers were supposed to understand what he was saying to them. And, of course, if he was only referring to a vision that John would later have, <clears throat> where symbolically trumpets were represented as the wrath of God, then uh, it would be problematic. For instance, and it's not something you see in other places. For instance, uh, let's take another thing that John had seen in a symbolic way in the book of Revelation. Let's take, for instance, the seven bowls of wrath, or the seven seals, or anything that's symbolically used in the context of the vision that John has in Revelation, um, you don't see anywhere else in the Bible referring to the seven vials as if it's just a known fact. It's it's a it's a illustrative tool used for John to explain something. Now now there's symbolic stuff going on there. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you wouldn't see Paul refer to and in the seventh bowl. You know he doesn't. He doesn't refer to a vision that is yet to yet to have occurred and expect people to to know what it is. So, 
I have a problem with that that interpretation just purely based on hermeneutics. But here's the issue. You don't have to guess. You don't have to guess. Um, now, what I'm going to refer to here, I'm going to explain a little bit more in depth, but I'm just going to say right now, um, lay something on you, that Paul uh, viewed the day of the Lord as beginning with the rapture. He viewed the rapture and the day of the Lord as back-to-back events. It's the only way to explain the tremendous amount of references in the New Testament for us to wait for the day of the Lord for two reasons. One, because it would be the day that we would be uh, uh, rescued, and it would also be the day that the judgment of the wicked would begin. It's a back-to-back event. The day of the Lord was something that Christians look forward to. Everybody else should dread. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a lot about references to that in a, a little bit. But what I want you to know is that in the Old Testament, of which Paul was a great student of, the day of the Lord was associated with the eschaton trumpet. And uh, and it was in, uh, I'll give you, and I'll tell you which trumpet that is, which is not a shofar blast in just a minute. But I want you to see this clearly, first of all, uh, and let's go to Joel 2, first of all. If you've got a Bible, it might be a good thing to follow along here. Uh, you can pause it if you want. Joel 2, verse 1. Now, this is not the only time that Joel refers to this, but this is just a good, a good, uh, place to do it because it's so uh, it's so clear. He says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now that's actually going to be important that he's asking to do two things. He's asking to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm in the holy mountain. Let let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Now, if Paul knew that the day of the Lord I mean Joel is is like the book of the day of the Lord. I mean, it's almost entirely about the day of the Lord. And Joel says that there is going to be a trumpet on the day of the Lord. Now, at this point, all I'd have to do is to convince you that Paul believed that the rapture and the day of the Lord were associated in some way, which I'm going to do later on. But I just want you to know that the day of the Lord and and a trumpet blast are very, very closely associated. Another example of this is in Zephaniah 1. If you've never read Zephaniah 1, Check it out. It's entirely about the day of the Lord. And it says this, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteneth greatly. Uh, This is all from the King James, by the way. And even the voice of the day of the Lord, uh, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm, against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Okay, again, we see that the day of the Lord is a day of the trumpet, but also a day of an alarm. Now, that is a specific reference to a specific type of trumpet blast, and it is not in any way associated with a shofar. Let's go to Numbers 10. Please turn to Numbers 10 if you've got a Bible, and I want you to see this with your, with your own two eyes. Numbers 10, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make the two trumpets of silver. Okay, these are two trumpets of silver, not ram's horns. Of a whole piece shalt thou make them, and thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly. Okay, that's important. And for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, All the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but one trumpet, 
Then the princes, which are the heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. When ye blow an alarm, the, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When ye blow an alarm the second time, the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. Then they shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall not be for you an ordinance. Wait. Let me read that again. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Okay. So there is two types of horns that can be two types of things that can be done with these uh, these silver trumpet blasts. They gather together the assembly. Now that should be incredibly important in regard to what the Lord says in Matthew twenty four. He's going to do with this is the gathering together. He uses this word uh, episynagoge, the upward gathering, the gathering together. Same word that Paul uses in Second Thessalonians two. I know, I know, I know. It's not supposed to be uh, referring to one another if Matthew twenty four is for the Jews, but just. Whatever, they both use the word gathering together, and I don't think it's an accident in regard to this trumpet. It's the gathering trumpet is the one that's used. But you can also do a thing, which Joel is saying that happens on the day of the Lord, is not just a, a blowing the trumpet, but also an, a, a sounding of the alarm. Now, the reason that is so amazing to me is because this sounding of the alarm, uh, let's read again what happens. If you sound the alarm, and this is what happens if you go uh, if you go to war in the land against the enemy that oppresseth you, this is what happens when you sound an alarm. You will be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Now, what does that mean? Does, that means that the Lord will save them from their enemies. If they sound an alarm, it's almost as if it's it's calling God to battle for them. They will be saved from their enemies. Um, so, because, why? Because they remember before the Lord your God. Now, that is unbelievably accurate when we start to look at the New Testament uh, view of the day of the Lord and what happens. Um, I'm going to just read some of this stuff about the, what the New Testament view of the day of the Lord is, and I want you to get a really good feeling for what's happening here. Um, first of all, let's go to Second Thessalonians 6 through 10. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and, the, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, then shall uh, be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now in the context here, and as you can see, even in reading that, this is something Paul's saying for his believers to look forward to because they're going to be glorified in his saints on that day. But it's clear that he also says that that's I mean, the context of this, in talking to the Thessalonians who are being persecuted, he's like, don't worry, they're going to get theirs on that day. And it's the same day that you guys are going to be glorified. Obviously, this is right before he, the most famous rapture passage that everybody agrees on. Uh, Peter has the same idea here. I, I, I'm going to read a lot of these because I want you to, to 
get an amalgamation of it. I want you to feel uh, what the New Testament consensus is about this dual purpose of the day of the Lord, to rescue the wicked and deliver the righteous. Second Peter 3, 4. I'm going to read a few verses here, so stay with me. It says, And saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Here he's talking about how the unbelievers are going to say, Where is the promise of his coming? That word coming there, by the way, is parousia, or parousia, uh, which is viewed as presence. It's the very first, the first thing that happens at the parousia is the rapture. Again, all this stuff is covered. I think most people, regardless of your timing of the rapture thing, would agree with that. So, but, but it's not that important, but, but let me continue. For, so, uh, for this, they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the word that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years is a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here, here Peter's like, look, I know it's taking a long time for, for, for this, this day of the Lord to happen, as he's going to say, specifically day of the Lord, but, but it's good that it takes a long time, because God is wanting everybody to repent. If he came by back immediately, then there less people would repent. He's long-suffering. He's letting this continue for the for the sake of getting more people to repent. Uh, Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works therein shall be burned up. Now, all of us are agreeing with that. Hey, yeah, the day of the Lord uh, is going to be a a day of wrath, just like Zephaniah said and, and Joel and everything else. But let me just read that. Let me read the last three verses again. And I'm going to read that one again, because I want you to get this feeling. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There is just no way around that that whole section there. Peter is telling believers to look forward to the day of the Lord, which is going to be a complete disaster. I mean, it's going to be the earth melting, fervent heat. And then he says, look forward to and hasten the the coming of the day of God. Um, And of course, in the context of this, you know, we started out saying, where's the promise of his parousia? the deliverance of his people is the parousia. He's saying, don't worry, it's going to come, it's just going to take a while because God is wanting more people to repent before he before He takes us up, before his parousia, before his coming. So, again, I want you to, I'm going to read some more, I'm going to get some amalgamation of this. The, the coming of the Lord is associated also, not just with the deliverance and the resurrection of the righteous and the, and the salvation of the righteous that are already on the earth, but also the destruction of the wicked and the beginning of the day of the Lord. Um, this is also in the most famous rapture verse in the history of the world, First Thessalonians 4. But what is often because there's a chapter break 
in, in, in because this is right at the end of First Thessalonians chapter four, and then chapter five naturally starts after that. So I'm I'm going to not tell you when the chapter break happens. I'm just going to read this as if it was one cohesive whole, and there was no chapter break because I think you'll get way more understanding of what's going on if I do that. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Wait, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Um, okay. Do you see, he, he's talking about this. The subject has never changed. Grammatically, you could not make any case. There was no other subject. It, it's the rapture, the famous rapture, First Thessalonians 4, that he's referring to explicitly there as the day of the Lord. Uh, that at least happens on the day of the Lord. Um, he's saying that you look forward to the day of the Lord because that's the day that the rapture happens. Now, we're not going to be here for the day of the Lord and the wrath of God. And I think that everybody can make a logical connection there that... That of course the day of the Lord and the beginning of the destruction uh, of the of the ungodly and the wrath of God, uh, the only thing that's really preventing that from happening is He can't let His people see the wrath of God. So the rapture therefore makes perfect sense to be right before the day of the Lord. I mean, it's just a logical conclusion, and there's plenty of type evidence of this as well. Um, in fact, explicit reference when uh, in in Luke 17 talking about the type references of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and how they happened on the very same day. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It says, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And this is also explicit. If you go back and, and read those passages, I know that some people will say, oh, well, you know, Noah entered the ark and then seven days happened. But uh, I covered that in the film, uh, Matthew 24, uh, the rapture puzzle solved with Matthew 24, that, uh, that of course, that, that not only is refuting essentially what the Lord says here in Luke 17, but it also refutes the clear, uh, d the clear text there in Genesis that, that it happened on the same day. Um, but anyway, what does all this have to do with trumpets is the question. And the main thing I wanted to show you about the day of the Lord thing and how the New Testament believes and speaks and teaches their their readers that the rapture and the day of the Lord are married. And that all of a sudden makes complete sense that Paul knows that the resurrection of the of the dead and is an Old Testament concept in that he then sees so many places the the day of the lord places in the old testament specifically joel which is entirely about the day of the lord and zephaniah 1 if you were an old testament scholar which he was and somebody asked you about the day of the lord you would immediately hearken to joel and zephaniah 1 all of joel and zephaniah 1 and a few you know obviously day of the lord passages are scattered everywhere but that would be the primary places and both of those speak of the trumpet the sounding of the trumpet and the, or the and the alarm which of course itself the prophet the prophets weren't speaking out of their own you know coming up with new concepts either they were referring to types and numbers 10 um from the from the torah itself i mean the, and so it's all connected back to numbers 10 and the silver trumpets which uh which call the gathering together the very same words gathering together that both paul and jesus use when referring to the resurrection and the sounding of the alarm the beginning of the day of the lord 
And that's what the Lord is going to battle for them. That's why I made that point that the sounding of the alarm in Numbers 10 was to get the Lord to go to battle for them against their enemies. And that's exactly what's happening on the day of the Lord. It's a perfect type. So before moving on to what I believe is the much more probable fulfillment of the uh, fall feasts in the end times and where they would go, uh, I, I want you to realize what the trumpets associated with the rapture or resurrection are about. Because I think that it's just, we don't have a lot of options. Nobody's really ever told us about that, that that's an option. There's now three options. I mean, uh, most people believe that the only two options that they had was, well, there's trumpets in Rosh Hashanah and then there's trumpets in the book of Revelation. Since most people reject the seven trumpets of Revelation, and I think rightfully so, they think that their only other option is it's Rosh Hashanah. And that's not true. You've got a completely different set of trumpets that are much more uh, 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 important in regard to the resurrection and the day of the Lord with the Numbers 10 silver trumpets and their references to the day of the Lord in Joel and Zephaniah. Blow ye a trumpet and sound the alarm. And, of course, that exact same language of the gathering together is used by Paul and the Lord. So what I want you to know is that the trumpets about the rapture are not Rosh Hashanah trumpets. Okay? They're not. They just aren't. Um, and so, therefore, you should not look for the rapture on Rosh Hashanah. You should not look for the rapture on Rosh Hashanah. I don't understand really how people that believe in the doctrine of eminence, um, you know, the any moment return of Christ, can somehow justify believing that, well, yeah, any moment as long as it's on Rosh Hashanah. For the record, I believe that eminency is a good doctrine if it's applied correctly. I just feel that uh, it is not applied in the true sense in which eminency should be applied. That is, there are certain events that must happen before the rapture is imminent, if, if you will. There are, there are events that must happen before the rapture is imminent. Uh, but the rapture will, at that time, be imminent, and that's when no man knows the day or the hour, and it could be a pretty long stretch of time in which it could potentially happen. And uh, anyway, I don't want to go too much into detail about that. If you want more information, you can see my video about the rapture uh, puzzle solved with Matthew 24. Okay, so let's move on to the Spring Feast. Now, the Spring Feast fulfillment in Christ are well known, and there are plenty of people that will tell you all of the details about how these uh, four Spring Feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost, were all fulfilled exactly in Christ. And I really recommend a study of this to you. I'm not going to go through uh, the, the details of it uh, right here. But you can find plenty of good studies on this. Unfortunately, a lot of those good studies also do, you know, tell you about the spring feast for the purpose of telling you about the fall feast, in which I believe they have completely wrong. Um, but I do believe that the fall feast will be fulfilled. I think it's, um, is it uh, Hosea that talks about how the Lord's coming will be like the former and the latter rain. This is the idea that uh, the former rain is talking about the spring feast. It's sort of synony synonymous with these spring feasts. The former rains and the latter rains are talking about the fall uh, harvest feasts. And it says in that sense, the Lord's coming will be like the former and the latter rain, which of course is trying to tell them even back then that the Lord's going to kind of come in two stages. He's going to come here as a suffering servant and then he's going to come as a, a victor and uh, in judgment in the last uh, the last time. And in that sense is how also this should be understood that these 
spring feasts were all fulfilled. They're done with. And done so, and I want, I'm going to briefly explain how they were fulfilled so you can see the timeline in which they were fulfilled. Because I want you to see that just as they were fulfilled the first time, we should also expect them to be fulfilled the second time, at least in that sense of the chronology. Okay, so Passover uh, was Nisan the 14th, uh, 32 AD, when Jesus was crucified, okay? Now, that's an incredibly amazing study. One of the most amazing studies you will ever do is to find the ways in which Christ was the Passover and all the Old Testament references to the Passover and all the things that were done on the Passover. For instance, you know, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the very day that they would choose the Passover lamb, and they had to keep it with them in their house for three days. And he stayed in Jerusalem for three days, or just outside Jerusalem. Uh, and, and then they, they bound him to the altar on the same time that they crucified Christ. Of course, Christ didn't die until the exact right moment when the Passover lamb was killed. And and then, of course, the, the that whole thing is just amazing. And you can go into the details of all this and learn it for yourself. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, now that actually happens the next day. So Passover is an important part, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the next part. Now this is, again, Christ talks all about this. This is my bread. Now he he talks about this bread, which is going to be later on, but um, after he's killed, but he does reference that the bread is his body, which of course is what uh, you see here, that his burial in the tomb on the 15th of Nisan. The Feast of First Fruits was two days later, Nisan the 17th, this would be three full days uh, after his uh, death, and this is of course when he was resurrected. He was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits, uh, exactly fulfilling, being the first fruits of the dead, as First Corinthians and so many other places refer to him as. I mean, he is the, his resurrection is fulfilling first fruits. There's just no doubt about it. But it's interesting, I want you to see that this was that these three feasts were right, you know, back to back, basically, and within a four-day period. Now then there's another one that's kind of interesting, the Feast of Pentecost. Now this happens on uh, Sivan the 7th, and this is, I think, 50 days afterwards. Um, and if you remember, the Lord says to them, hey, look, uh, and he spends, the Lord spends, I think, 40 days with them and leaves 10 days, that number 10 is going to come up, and it's not numerology, but it's, it's just 10 days before is going to come up a little later. Um, he he leaves them within 10 days of Pentecost. And he says, you guys tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Now, he was with them after he resurrected from the dead. He, he showed up different times, uh, usually on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. That's why the early church met on Sunday, by the way, is because he would show up and eat with them on Sunday. They didn't think it was mystical. They didn't think it was anything else. But that's why the early church uh, traditionally met on Sunday is because the Bible says that he showed up to them during that time after his resurrection uh, on Sundays, so whatever. It's just just a side note. But uh, so then he leaves, he, he ascends to heaven within 10 days of Pentecost and says, wait around for Pentecost. And then, of course, Pentecost, we all know what happens. Uh, you know, the 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 Holy Spirit, uh, Peter and the rest of them gathered in the upper room and the birthday of the church and the receiving of power from on high with the Holy Spirit. And the whole thing is fulfilled on Pentecost. It's just, it's beautiful. And I also want you to notice that gap, that 50 days, that, and that is 50, right? Because that's where the, the word Pentecost comes in. It's 50 days um, after Passover is when Pentecost happens. And I want you to recognize that too, that when these feasts are in the process of being fulfilled, it is 
a very orderly time period and and ever, all the big events were happening within like one if you will season of feasts now notice that the fall feasts also have follow a similar pattern in that they are fulfilled within a very short season if you will um, for example the feast of trumpets rosh hashanah is on tishri one and then in between rosh hashanah and uh the next one yom kippur also known as the day of atonement there are 10 days okay so there's that 10 days it's going to become important there in a minute and then after the day of atonement you have the feast of tabernacles i think this is about five days after that you've got the feast of tabernacles and then 75 days now again you have this other thing you you had the other ones just like before with uh, uh the other feasts you had about a five day kind of window and then you had a big gap between those feasts and the pentecost there was a 50 day uh gap in this case there's a there's a fulfillment of this is 10 days and then 5 days and then a big gap if you want to include uh the feast of lights or hanukkah now christ uh actually went to hanukkah and in john 10 uh, 22, he, he essentially validates that Hanukkah is a valid event. And I think it's very important in the context of why Hanukkah exists. And it's 75 days afterwards, Hanukkah exists because it is the celebration of the rededication of the temple after the type of Antichrist, Antiochus, or Antiochus, or whatever you want to call him, uh, uh, desecrated the temple. Um, then after, then the, the, that is a, that is a dedication of the, of the cleansing of the temple from the Antichrist. And I'm going to tell you, this is going to become unbelievably wonderfully fulfilled in if you understand how this all plays out. Now, I'm going to explain something that I don't know. I mean, I explain this in certain places, and I'm going to really presume a lot of you know a lot of stuff about eschatology from here on out. And I'm going to probably say stuff that you're going to disagree with or, you know, that's going to run up against the presuppositions or whatever. If you haven't seen my video on, um, it's about an hour and a half on the Rapture Puzzle Solved with Matthew 24, check it out. It's it's really my best effort at uh, at explaining in detail a lot of different things. One thing I didn't mention there in that video, though, is... The nature of this 70th week and the 30-day period and the 45-day period after that. Now, notice that 75 days there, if you, if, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, Daniel um, prophesied that there would be seven weeks to make an end of transgressions uh, with his people. Let me just read it real quick. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now that means, and I'm not going to go through all this, I'm going to assume you know a lot of this stuff, that's seven, the seven-year period that's spoken of. And what's the purpose of that seven-year period? It's to bring an end of transgressions for the Jews, to to reconcile them for their iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to and to anoint the most holy. It's the begin. Seventy weeks is uh, is very very Jewish in its in its completion. Now Daniel also speaks of if you, if you know much about Daniel, he speaks of one thousand two hundred sixty days, but then he also says one thousand two hundred ninety days. 
this extra 30-day period that's added there. And then he says, blessed is he who makes it to the 1,335 days, I think is what he says, which is another 45-day period. So a long story short, this is not something that's sort of just unique to Daniel. You start to find this in all kinds of different places. It starts to show up throughout the Bible. But there is a seven-year, 70-week period. And then after that, there is a 30-day period. And then after that, there is a 45-day period. Now, the this gets explained in lots of different ways. I think one of the best examples and explanations of this is from a guy named Albert Charpie on his website, prewrathministries.org. He has two sections on the 30-day period and the 45-day period. It is very in-depth. If you think that there's not a lot of scripture on the 30-day period and the 45-day period, think again. And it is so solid. It's so it's so sound. Uh, I highly recommend Albert Charpie. He's a guy very humble and very committed to making sure that uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't lead people astray in terms of doctrine. He's very cautious about that. I really recommend him on his 30 and 45 day period study. What I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to give you a thumbnail of how I uh, see all this fulfilling. And then I'm going to read uh, in depth about this because I know that you're going to hear this and be like, okay, well, you're going to have to prove that. So let me just tell you first. The end of the 70th week of Daniel is... Uh, mentioned at the end of Revelation chapter 10, right at about the end of the trumpet judgments. It's actually in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And it says in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the the mystery of God will be completed. The mystery of God, uh, you can do a study of that, especially in that context. It's 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 clearly the, the end of the 70th week of Daniel ends at the end of the trumpets. Um, you got to realize, too, the day of the Lord... Um, Jewish people go through the day of the Lord, except for the 144,000, which are kind of like a priest class, I guess you could kind of say. But uh, one-third of national Israel, or rather two-thirds of national Israel, will be destroyed, Zechariah tells us, um, through this day of the Lord period. In fact, one of the primary purposes of the day of the Lord is to um, purify national Israel. They go through it, and um, ten days before the end of the 70th week of Daniel, uh, at this moment of the Lord coming down, putting his feet on the earth, not the Mount of Olives, but on the sea in, in, in Revelation 10 there, and everything that we're going to read about here in a minute, is the, the moment of the beginning of this 10 days of, of awe, a chance for repentance uh, for national Israel during that 10 days. And then the Day of the Atonement actually is the final day of the 70th week of Daniel. Um, that is also the day that the two witnesses are killed when their testimony, which I believe their testimony is to call national Israel to a repentance, just like uh, um, in the same sense that uh, Elijah or John the Baptist, their ministry of repentance, calling people to repentance before uh, the Lord. That is essentially the same thing. Their ministry is completed at that day. Three days after that, they are resurrected in this 30-day period, uh, which but let me let me continue here. Now, the there's all kinds of references that we're going to be reading here about how the Lord himself has been um, taking care of these trumpet judgments and is basically covered in blood because of it. His robes are stained with with blood. When he goes and gets this 144,000, which have been protected through this time of the day of the Lord, and gets them out of Edom, or some people believe the uh, of uh, Basra or, or these... Uh, uh, the, the, what do they call it? The, the wherever they they think this hundred forty four thousand are going to be protected. Uh, he there's this place in the Old Testament where they see him coming to get them, and they're like, "Why are your robes 
died in red. And he's like, uh, I just got done judging everybody, uh, all my enemies and stuff. So he then takes them. Now, this is important. In this, in this very short time period in which these feasts are being fulfilled, he takes this 144,000 on a march from wherever they are to Mount Zion. Okay. Now, this the next uh, thing that's fulfilled is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is uh, them uh, that's celebrated traditionally on Mount Zion, which is where they would set up tents to remind them of their journey in the wilderness when God led them out of the wilderness to Israel. Okay. Now, during this time, he fulfills this on Mount Zion, um, doing exactly the same thing, leading his people out of the wilderness to Mount Zion. Now, keep in mind. What what has not happened yet? This is what has not happened yet is the bold judgments have not been poured out. Uh, what has not happened yet is the uh, the the uh, supper of the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Uh, a lot of stuff hasn't happened yet. So he takes them back to um, back to Israel, fulfilling the feast of tabernacles. And um, anyway, so this. Uh, then, uh, then the next cool thing about that is, then you've got this period of seventy-five days. Uh, the thirty day at the end of the thirty-day period is where Armageddon happens. For the next thirty days after this are going to be a big mess. The bold judgments are poured out on all who are left, which are, uh, and that's why the bold judgments are significant, significantly more harsh. Is that uh, the job of the trumpets has been completed? He has, uh, he has uh, redeemed for himself. Uh, and finish the mystery of God in, in the nation of Israel. Their 70 weeks have been completed, and then the seven bowls are poured out. But what's interesting before the seven bowls get poured out is interesting, because he actually, after he takes care of Israel, the next thing it talks about, he goes up to heaven and has the marriage supper of the Lamb with with us. And I believe that his robes at that moment are still stained in blood from what has happened before. The reason I think that is that when he comes back down to Revelation 19 to pour out the bold judgments on them that are left in Armageddon, which is at the end of the 30-day period, his robes are already stained in blood before he, anything ever happens. Uh, which, of course, if you see the Isaiah references that we're going to talk about, it'll make perfect sense. So all the bold judgments are poured out, culminating in Armageddon, the final defeat of, of Antichrist at the end of the 30-day period. Theologically speaking, the next uh, 45-day period mentioned by Daniel is a time of restoration. Um, I don't know exactly how that'll look or what happens, but I do know it is significant that it would therefore mean that you know the Day of the Atonement being the last day of the 70th week of Daniel, 75 days afterward, guess what? Is the Feast of Lights, celebrating the cleansing of the tabernacle, uh, from the desolation by the Antichrist, or a type of Antichrist in that case, which is Antiochus. If this is the real fulfillment of the fall feasts, which fit perfectly with uh, an end-time scenario, and keep in mind, me knowing the, 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 this kind of thing about which happens on which days has nothing to do with knowing the day or the hour of the, of, of the beginning of the day of the Lord. It is impossible to know the beginning of the day of the Lord. But what the problem that a lot of people, when they say, oh, well, Matthew 24 isn't talking about the rapture, they are the ones that have trouble in trying to reconcile how then are you not supposed to know when uh, the day or the hour because what you've just said is that, you know, if Matthew 24, I don't want to go into the details of this, but basically there's no way to know when the day of the Lord begins. But everyone will know when, uh, at least after the midpoint, they'll be able to just count how long it's going to be before the end of the 70th week of Daniel. All this stuff then after is after the midpoint at least, sort of a, 
uh, mid-course correction, when you see the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be higher than anything called God and all these blasphemous things, then you can just count three and a half years by whatever method that is. I don't know if it's whatever calendar they're using with that three and a half years, but you can just count it. Uh, and you will know when the end of the 70th week is, you'll know when the next 30 days is, you'll know when the next 45-day period is. It does not, however, tell you when the day of the Lord begins, because it begins at an unknown time uh, in between those events. It could be hours, it could be years. It just is, is unknowable. So the idea here, broadly speaking, is that the fall feasts are fulfilled towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel and should not be looked at as the beginning of the rapture. Uh, yes, they are fulfilled eschatologically, but the but the Feast of Trumpets, uh, or Rosh Hashanah, is not associated with the rapture, and it is associated with the end of the 70th week of Daniel much more clearly, and I think we'll see that in a moment. That's broadly speaking what I want to say. I don't want to be too dogmatic about saying Rosh Hashanah will be 10 days before the end of the 70th week of Daniel, and the end of the 70th week of Daniel is the Day of Atonement, and... Uh, five days after that is the Feast of Tabernacles when Christ comes from Basra and leads them back up to Mount Zion. And then there is um, uh, the 75 days after that period and the cleansing of the temple and Hanukkah. I don't want to be too dogmatic on that whole thing uh, as far as the exact moments, but I do feel strongly that these these feasts are fulfilled towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel and it makes much more sense. The precise moments, uh, I'm open to debate. I'm actually, I have a lot of emails out to people that I respect about this, looking for some more information to see if I'm on the right track. I know that uh, Charles Cooper, somebody that I respect greatly, I I, uh, know that he is actually working on a paper and commentary about this issue. uh, And I know that he believes that the fall feasts are filled eschatologically towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel, but I don't know that his specific points on, on how they are. And it may end up being that I, that I change my mind about exactly when these dates happen, but I don't think it's going to be too much different than uh, what I have already laid out for you and will continue to lay out in the rest of this broadcast. I also have a few other emails out and different things about that regard, about the specifics about when these are fulfilled. But one thing I can be sure of is that the trumpets spoken of about the, about the resurrection in the New Testament are not referring to Rosh Hashanah nor are they referring to the ram's horns. They are referring to the day of the Lord in Joel, Zephaniah, and hearkening back to Numbers 10, the sounding for gathering and the sounding for alarm, which is, of course, why they used it for the beginning of the day of the Lord. So I want you to understand that, first of all. I want you to understand, second of all, that the actual fulfillment of the fall feasts occur towards the end of the eschatological time period. It is true that they will be fulfilled in the end times, but not associated with a rapture, in fact, a great deal later. So I'm now going to read from a book called Revelation Unsealed by Donald A. Salerno, Jr. I think the book is overall pretty good. I, I think it's a... I disagree with him on a few minor issues, like Mystery Babylon, some other things, but but overall I agree with him. And I, he's given me some things that I'd never heard of before, particularly in the seven churches and, and some stuff that I really enjoyed about this book. But um, I'm going to read from his book, just verbatim, about these feasts. And I just want to do it because I think it'll kind of clarify and give some more scripture references for some things that I've said here so you can be a little more comfortable that I'm just not, uh, you know, speaking off the top of my head or shooting from the hip. 
The feast commemorated the beginning of the Messianic Kingdom. This is speaking of the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, and the disastrous fate of the unbelieving Gentile nations. From the beginning of Rosh Hashanah until the Day of Atonement are ten days. These ten days are known as the Days of Awe. And according to Jewish tradition are the final period of the time that the, wor- uh, that the world and Israel have to repent before God's final judgment is unleashed. The Feast of, Tabernac- uh, the Feast of Trumpets rather, is also believed to be the birthday of the world, the beginning of the Messianic Kingdom, and the day in which Messiah will reveal himself and regather Israel back to the land. Since the first day of Tishri was the day in which God created the earth, it seems very appropriate that Jesus, the angel of the Lord, stands upon the earth on the same day, reclaiming its possession uh, for his kingdom. The events of this great feast are fulfilled in Revelation chapter 10. And the Revelation chapter 10 verses, perhaps, is a good time to read that. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from the heaven with clothes with clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars when he cried out seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me seal up these things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it in the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it and there should be delay no longer but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he is about to sound the mystery of god would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets then the voice which i heard from heaven spoke to me again and said go and take the little book which is open uh, in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth so i went and said to the angel, and said to him, Give to me that little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. John sees that this angel set his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the land. This will be the first time that Jesus returns physically to earth for salvation of, the, of national Israel. John states that the angel cries out with the voice of a lion. The language of these verses parallels a, sim, a similar set of verses in the book of Hosea, which also speak of the Messiah's re, uh, return for the salvation of Israel. Hosea says, They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Hosea 11, 10-11. Another passage in Isaiah closely parallels the beginning of Christ's kingdom and the Feast of Trumpets. Isaiah 27, 12-13 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh uh, from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in the day the great, that the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. In this text is pictured the blowing of the great shofar, or ram's horn. Again, now here's our ram's horn. Now we've got explicit ram's horn references here, uh, which actually makes sense in terms of Rosh Hashanah. Um, uh, which occurs during the celebration of the Feast of Trumpets. Isaiah also states that those who have escaped to the wilderness will come back to worship the Lord at the Holy Mount in Jerusalem. This mountain is very likely the Holy Mount of Zion, where Jesus will later be seen standing. As Jesus returns to the earth and roars to his people to return from the wilderness to Israel, it is stated that the seven thunders will sound. Revelation 10, 3, 4 
What these thunders reveal is not described because John is asked not to record what he hears. They will probably involve some sort of announcement to the world and Israel regarding what is a, what is to occur as Jesus takes possession of his kingdom. Since it is not revealed what the message of the seven thunders is, one can only speculate as to their importance. Um... Jesus swears before the Almighty that there will be no more delay for the establishment of his kingdom. John also writes that in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the final woe will the mystery of God be completed, which was spoken by of by his servants and prophets. The mystery is the completion of God's redemption of national Israel and the establishment of the messianic kingdom. And as the days of the 70th week come to close, Israel has rejected her Messiah and refused to repent at his first advent, it will be during the Lord's return that the nation of Israel will, will finally be redeemed, fulfilling all that was predicted by the prophets. In Romans, Paul speaks of this great mystery. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sin. Now, of course, that makes sense in regard to the 70th week of Daniel prophecy. Uh, 70 weeks are determined to make an end of sin. Uh, As the Lord returns physically to earth, he will cry out to those Jews who have not received the mark that they should repent. As stated in Hebrews, Jesus will come a second time to put away sin, but for the salvation of Israel... Hebrews 9.28, these compromising Jews will have a 10-day period to accept Christ's offer before the Day of Atonement, which will end the 70th week. Upon their repentance, Jesus will go forth to rescue the 144,000 and the other Jews who are hiding in the areas of Assyria and Egypt. It will, will be this great roar of the Messiah that will signal that the Jews should now return to the land of Israel. The prophet Zechariah tells us that there will be a great mourning in the land during this period of repentance. Zechariah 12.10-14 says, And I will pour... On the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn uh, every uh, family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and the wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. This revealing of the Messiah, the calling of the assembly of Israel back to the land, and the beginning of the Messianic kingdom on the first day of the month of Tishri is a perfect fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, which is with its initiation. The ten days of repentance begin, and soon John will be shown the end of the 70th week on the tenth of Tishri. Its culmination will be the fulfillment of the next feast of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. Uh, then we're going to skip ahead. He's ta- he talks about the two witnesses here for a little bit, and he talks about how they're, they will actually die on the last day of the 70th week of Daniel. Um, I would continue. It says, These men are said to be given power over weather, waters of the earth, over plagues, over fire. During the last half of the 70th week, they will no doubt perform these great miracles in order to turn away the blindness of Israel. Similar to the 144,000 who, f- who fled to Petra and in Edom, 
these two witnesses also will be protected from God from the trumpet judgments. In fact, it is possible that the world will come to believe that it is these two individuals who are behind God's awesome trumpet judgments, so much so that the Antichrist will attempt to kill them. He will do this after they have finished their testimony, which is to last 1,260 days or three and a half years. The Antichrist will be desperate to kill them, knowing that Jesus has now taken possession of the earth and called his elect back to meet him in Israel. This will be the Antichrist's last-ditch effort to consolidate his power by showing his ability to kill these two men. These two witnesses are killed on the Day of Atonement, the 10th of Tishri, exactly 1,260 days from the midpoint of the 70th week, thus ending the Days of Awe. Now, we're going to go back a little bit and talk about the Day of Atonement. The next feast, which takes place 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets, is the Day of Atonement. This is to occur on the 10th day of the month of Tishri, as previously stated, uh, 10 days between the two feasts are for repentance of national Israel as well as the rest of the world. When the Day of the Atonement has been reached, those who have not repented will have and placed their trust in Jesus as Messiah will be judged with the rest of the world. This is confirmed in Leviticus, where God states that those who do not afflict their soul or repent will be cut off from his people in Leviticus 23.29. That's actually the same chapter where it talks about the how to celebrate the the, the uh Day of Atonement, that those who don't repent will be cut off from his people. So it's very significant there. The Day of Atonement is considered to be the holiest day of the Jewish year. This is the only day in which the high priest was allowed to enter the uh, inner temple. It was on this day that God would grant or deny redemption to the na nation of Israel. It was on the same day that God will accept the repentance of national Israel. And we talked about the 70th week. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. The 70th week will come to a close as Israel repents and is grafted back into the family of God. Romans 11, 23, and 27. If you haven't read that, I would encourage you to do so. Romans 11, 23 through 27. This final redemption of Israel fulfills the Day of Atonement in exact chronology precisely 10 days after Jesus takes possession of the earth in, after the Feast of Trumpets. The Lord's March to Israel. This I find fascinating. Uh, believing Israel has... Upon reaching the Day of Atonement, repented of its sins, and the two witnesses, having finished their testimony, and, the sl and s are slain by the Antichrist. The followers of the Antichrist will rejoice greatly for three and a half days, thinking that their Antichrist still has the power and authority to stand against God Almighty. It is during this three days of their celebration that the Lord Jesus will rescue his people and lead them back to the land of Israel. Isaiah reveals that Jesus will come eventually to Mount Zion, Isaiah 59:20. In Hosea, we are told that the afflicted or repentant Jews will seek uh, the Messiah after his appearance on the Feast of Trumpets. He will restore them on the third day after the Day of Atonement. Hosea 5:15 and 6, 1 through 3 says, I will again, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will diligently seek me. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us uh, pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. So that's where one of the places we get this. He's going to come like the latter and former rain. Um, let's skip down. It was the third day after Israel accepted the first covenant of God that the Lord came down from Mount Sinai to speak to his commandments in the nation of Israel. In much the same way, three days after the Israel accepts the new covenant of God, the Lord Jesus will appear to them in Israel. 
The parallels are absolutely astounding. Moving on to Basra to Jerusalem. After the repentance of Israel on the Day of Atonement, Jesus will first go to Petra and Edom to save the 144,000, leading them on a triumphant march to Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet speaks of this return uh, to Jerusalem from Edom. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Quote, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my gardens, garments, and I have st- stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. In this passage from Isaiah, Jesus is pictured as he heads through Edom himself, destroying those who have come against Israel. In these verses, it is emphasized that he's traveling alone. Later, at the Battle of Armageddon, the armies of heaven will accompany Jesus. Uh, Jesus will also be wearing the very same garment, which became soaked with the blood of his enemies. The Lord will pour out great vengeance as he clears the way for 144,000 to march back to Israel. Um, Some other prophecies from Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, speaks of this great march. God came from uh, Teman, the Holy One, from Mount Parnon. Selah, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like... Light, his rays flashing in his hand, and, and his power was hidden. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head uh, from the house of the wicked by laying bare the foundations of the neck. Uh, moving on, uh, I'm just going to skip down. There's some really other cool verses here but uh, from Zechariah 12 and others. But it says, as Jesus heads through the Judean hills, he also will be joined by the remnant Jews who have fled from Assyria and Egypt and has begun their return as he roared to them on the Feast of Trumpets. The events of this gathering are spoken of in greater detail in Zechariah chapter 10. Jesus, uh, with his great crowd, will again enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate as he did in his first coming. The gates will swing wide open as Jesus enters Jerusalem. At the Lord's first coming into Jerusalem, he was rejected by national Israel. At at that time, he he stated that their house would be left desolate, and Israel would see him no more until they would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It will be on that day, about three and a half days after the Feast of Atonement, that he will be welcomed by the surviving one-third of national Israel who now accepts him as their Messiah. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he will likely come upon the bodies of the two witnesses who have been lying dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. It is extremely probable that it will be Jesus himself who breathes the life into these men and resurrecting them. Now, that may be true, but as he goes on to say, he has no idea. That's not explicitly stated whether Jesus himself raises them, but it actually would, you know, he would be there about the same time, so it's very possible. Uh, there's also a great earthquake when they are ascended into heaven, destroying uh, a tenth of Jerusalem, and 7,000 men will be killed in that earthquake. So there's still judgment obviously for Jerusalem and that it's not, he's not entering a a perfect Jerusalem by any stretch of the imagination. He's entering a Jerusalem that is a very much uh, has, you know, been promoting the antichrist in a lot of ways. Um, 
so moving on to the Feast of Tabernacles. This is amazing. The last and final feast, uh, this is last and final feast. Technically, there is, as we'll see, the Feast of Lights, Hanukkah as well, will be fulfilled on the fifth day following the end of the 70th week will be the Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23, 33-43. The feast took place on the 15th day of the month of Tishri. It commemorated the time when the Lord led his people through the wilderness to the land of Israel. In remembrance of this period, the Jews were to erect tiny makeshift booths and live in them. This was to remind them that their forefathers had very little shelter during their wilderness trek. This feast also celebrated the commencement of the Messianic kingdom, as well as the end of the fall harvest. It was also traditionally observed atop Mount Zion. It was revealed by Isaiah previously that Jesus would, would head towards Mount Zion as he returns for the salvation of Israel. Obadiah also prophesied that, quote, the saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge, uh, judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, keep in mind, the bulls have not been poured out yet. The Mount Zion, him setting his foot and splitting Mount Zion in two, is not him descending from from earth. Uh, you can see that exact same thing happening in Zechariah, and it's for the purpose of hiding those that he's walking with now and leading out of the wilderness. He hides them in the in the valley uh, of Mount Zion, provides an escape route for them, for the purpose of pouring out the bold judgments to keep them safe during the impending judgment of the bold judgments on the Antichrist and those that are left. Uh, with him, so that's important. Uh, since Jesus has fulfilled the other six feasts perfectly, he should next be fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles atop Mount Zion. Amazingly, in Revelation chapter 14, which shows the outcome for national Israel and God's conflict of the ages, John is, John is shown Jesus atop Mount Zion with 144,000. This is in Revelation 14, 1-5. through 5. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of the harpists playing their harps, and they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who had not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, and they were without fault before the throne of God. I also want to point out here that Zechariah 14.4 really explains the purpose of the splitting of the Mount of Olives. I think that we have sort of, in evangelical interpretations, seen this as like, you know, the Lord comes back and destroys the Antichrist and just touches his foot, and just because his foot touches the Mount of Olives, it breaks it, but then he destroys everybody. But you need to understand that this in context of the, what he does with the splitting of the Mount of Olives, and that's explained in Zechariah 14, 4 and 5. It says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountains, half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Now we don't, I don't think, know when that is, but we can see the concept is that if there's an earthquake, um, you're going to flee, and in this valley created, it's a sort of a protection issue. Um, there's purpose in doing this. And this is before the the bulls are pointed out. 
Thus the Lord God will will come and all the saints with you. Now, we know this is speaking of the second time. Now, it doesn't matter if you think these saints are believers or if you think that they are angels. Uh, whatever it is, you can make a case for both very easily, I think. But nevertheless, we know that it is specifically not that first set of judgments because he says he does, does that alone. But he comes with his saints in this next point for the purpose of pouring out the bold judgments, etc. And then finally, that culminates, obviously, with Armageddon in which the Antichrist is is bound. Now I'm going to start reading about the Feast of Dedication. This is the last uh, the last thing I'll read here. Uh, the Antichrist, along with those who have uh, opposed the return of Jesus, shall be vanquished by the sword of his mouth in Revelation chapter 20. John begins to describe what takes place as the kingdom of Christ begins. This kingdom will first begin with a 45-day period of cleansing of the earth. This was the last 45-day period revealed to Daniel the prophet in Daniel 12, verse 12. This final allotment of time will bring the fulfillment of another of Israel's feasts. As discussed in the previous chapter covering these feasts, uh, covering these feasts, Hanukkah takes place 75 days after the Feast of Atonement. On the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Shizlev, I don't know, the last half of the 70th week will last a period of three and a half years or 1,260 days, Daniel 2 7, 12 7. The final day of the 70th week will culminate in the Jewish Day of Atonement. 30 days after the end of the 70th week on, the, uh, on day 1,290, the Antichrist will be defeated. Daniel 12 11, 45 days after the defeat of the Antichrist on the th- 1335th day will be the Feast of Dedication, Daniel 12 12. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, continues to be an important holiday for the Jewish people. Celebrated by Christ in John 10, 22, and 23, during his first advent, the first commemorated is, uh, Israel's deliverance from the forerunner of the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, as explained previously, was the Syrian ruler of one of the uh, four divisions of the Grecian Empire. The Jews signaled a covenant with him, much like what they will do with the Antichrist. The, this evil ruler turned on the Jews and marched into Jerusalem, desecrating their temple. A Hebrew leader named Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against Antiochus. Antiochus was eventually defeated, and the temple was cleansed. On the 25th day of the month of Shislev, the temple was rededicated in a celebration that lasted eight days, known as Hanukkah. In a similar manner, during the 45-day period following the defeat of the Antichrist, Jesus will cleanse the earth in preparation for the dedication of his kingdom. This cleansing period and the dedication will be the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Dedication. Again, it is fulfilled exactly as the other Jewish festivals have been fulfilled. Moving back into the final chapters of Revelation. Okay, so he continues. Now, again, I would not be dogmatic about the specific moments of, well, it could be maybe the Day of Atonement would be a little bit different or something like that. But I do think that these feasts will be required to be filled towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel to even make logical sense. You know, because they are about the establishment of the kingdom, um, and so much of that really just doesn't make sense to have this uh, Rosh Hashanah happen at the rapture, especially if if you believe, as most pre-tribulationalists do, that the rapture happens, you know, some unknown time before the seven-year period even begins. Then you've got all of these feasts, like, necessarily being fulfilled within, like, 75 days of, of the first part of that, you know, having really nothing to do with Israel, because... Israel's seven-year judgment in the whole idea, you know, they're not even being dealt with. I mean, at that point, um, it makes so much more sense if the if the seven-year period, and especially the time of Jacob's trouble, the whole thing is about Israel. Then, of course, the fulfillment of their feasts in the seventieth week 
has to be towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel. It's just, it just makes good logical sense. Um, so you can argue with me about the details of that, but I do want you to at least start investigating it for yourself that these feasts are quite probably at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Therefore, when you hear people say, hey, the rapture is going to happen next week because Rosh Hashanah is next week, you can be absolutely confident that they are wrong. If for no other reason, feast stuff aside, you can be sure that Rosh Hashanah has nothing to do with the rapture because those rapture verses that speak of a trump or a trumpet are not referring to Rosh Hashanah at all. They're referring to a completely different, well-known, well-established eschatological trumpet in the Old Testament associated with the day of the Lord. And they, that, that the reason why it's associated with the day of the Lord in Joel and Zephaniah and other places is because of the significance of it in regard to sounding the alarm and gathering the assembly. So that's why Paul was talking about it. That's why Jesus talked about it uh, in that way. And you can be confident of that, even if you don't agree with uh, the issue of the fall feasts uh, being towards the end of the 70th week of Daniel, which I think is a pretty, pretty solid bet. But uh, I know that, as I said, Charles Cooper, who is much better at this stuff, is coming out with a paper on this pretty soon, and he's going to detail his position. So I may uh, revise this uh, if he has some good points about that stuff. Okay, with that, I'm going to wrap up. If anybody wants, by the way, speaking of Charles Cooper, I turned uh, the revelationcommentary.org commentary into an eSword module, pretty much for my own purposes, but I know other people can uh, use that if you're a user of eSword out there uh, and want a good commentary on Revelation. It is available on my website, prewrathmedia.com slash eSword. So prewrathmedia.com slash eSword, one word, E-S-W-O-R-D, and you will see it in two different versions there, CMT and CMTX. Also, let me know. Send me an email if you would be interested in hearing more uh, studies about this kind of stuff uh, from me. I've been struggling a lot with that recently. I've been doing a lot of private research in terms of uh, prophecy and the Book of Revelation and stuff and thinking about doing just uh, you know big commentaries and stuff on it. And I don't know if that would be a productive thing to do or not. Certainly, it wouldn't conflict with my... Uh, evangelism and stuff. Again, everybody keep praying for the truth movement and a revival in the truth movement. I think that there is a, there's going to be a great revival in the truth movement, but you guys got to continue to pray. Uh, but I would say it's not going to conflict with a lot of that stuff, but I still just think about it all the time. So encourage me if you think that would be a good thing to do. And um, with that, I will talk to you all later. You can email me at nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com or go to my website, nowhere to run radio.com. And if you want to know more about uh, prophecy and stuff, there is a website that I have called prewrathmedia.com, as I just mentioned. It's got a lot more information about the prewrath viewpoint. And uh, we will talk to you later. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.